Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1989, director Tim Burton and star Michael Keaton gave the world its first big-picture iteration of the battle between the caped crusader and his mortal nemesis. In 2024, we take a return trip across the border to visit our friends to the north. The film is Batman. The whiskey is Lot 40 Rye Canadian Whiskey. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And I'm Batman. And I'm Batman. <laughs> we are looking at 1989's Batman. A movie that, Brad, if I can just speak freely here, no. it enjoys a very unique position among all of the Batmen now. Because they all have to work around being called Batman this or Batman that. This one's just Batman. Like, yeah, they never anticipated having a million Batman movies. And this one's just like, you know what? I know what we're going to call our film. Batman. It's, it's like Gary Oldman. Batman. <laughs> Bob, this movie is fascinating. It is probably one of our more regularly referred to films. I feel like we talk about this movie at least once or twice a season mm-hmm. when we talk about movies that we're not sure why they just hit a cultural touch point and were as popular as they were. And yeah. here we are finally officially reviewing it. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome into the podcast. If you're a longtime listener, we're glad to have you back this season. And this is only episode two of season eight. What we're doing is we're looking at the highest grossing films of each year from 1988 to 2019. Batman was obviously the highest grosser for 1989. It was a freaking juggernaut. It broke records for opening weekend, made over $400 million at the worldwide box office, not adjusted for inflation. Uh, This thing was huge, Brad. And you're Mm -hmm. right. I mean, as two early 30s guys now, I guess approaching mid 30s, me and you. Like, this movie came out the year before we were born, and so you never want to sound like the upstart, young, cocky, like, what were people watching back in the day? <laughs> but for being made in 1989, I feel like this this film is one of the most 80s films I've ever seen. It's just, it's the hair, and it's the Tim Burtonness of it all, and when I think about Batman, I, I don't think of it as being closer to the 90s, really, than, like, the early, mid-80s. But it just feels like such an 80s movie. And I will say, like, I did not grow up watching this film, but I did grow up watching Batman, colon, the animated series, Mm. which ran from like 92 to 95. So Mm -hmm. I probably like in the late 90s was watching reruns of it. And I remember absolutely loving 
that cartoon. I mean, it was incredible. And so that very directly was made because of this film and, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the few subsequent films that came afterwards. And so I think that I already had a affinity for this movie before I watched it. But to be frank, I did not watch this movie until I was 30, 31. Mm-hmm. So like just a few years ago, you know, I, I might have told this story before, but my wife and I were in the midst of our entire living room, dining room area being uh, painted. Uh, she and I were painting it all. And so everything is all in the center of the room and our TV and couch is all in a different spot. And one night we finished painting. I was like, let's just watch something silly. I've heard that the Batman is silly. Let's watch that. And I, I have to say, this is what this is going to be a fascinating episode, Bob, because there's a lot to talk about <laughs> with this film. <laughs> well, we're going to get into talking about all of those things. We're also going to be sipping on some Lot 40 Rye Canadian whiskey today. But as we get into things, we want to make sure that you are along for the ride. So if you haven't already... Subscribe to Film and Whiskey on your preferred podcast platform. You'll get every episode. We post at least one episode a week and multiple bonus episodes per month as well so that you can stay updated and never miss an episode. If you're listening to us on YouTube, which, you know what? God bless you. If you've got a whole yeah. <laughs> video of a still image pulled up and you're listening to us there, uh, drop a like, drop a comment. Let us know what you think of 1989's Batman. You can also follow us on social media. We're all over the place. We're on Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, at Film Whiskey. Give us a follow there as well. Brad, are you ready to just dive right in with America's favorite segment? Oh, dude, I am so ready for this. <laughs> well, then it is time for Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take. With this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. This was not Brad's first time seeing this movie, but it sounds like it may have been your first time giving it your full attention, not painting during the movie. (laughs) Well, we weren't (laughs) painting during the movie, but we definitely were eating Chinese food and mostly just laughing at the film. I get it. I get (laughs) it. All right, man. So after one fully engrossed watch of this film. You have 60 seconds on the clock to break down the plot of the movie. Now, you are going to give full spoilers on the film Batman. However, I will say, like, you know, as with, like, James Bond movies, the the iterations of Batman, like, it's the same backstory. It's the same general strokes. Like, yep. Batman's going to fight some bad guys. He's going to win. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, people. I don't know what to tell you, but, like, <laughs> even if you haven't seen 1989's Batman, I think you could just stick around and listen to Brad spoil the movie because it has absolutely no bearing on my enjoyment of it. I was going to say, big spoiler alert, Jack Nicholson playing the Joker mm. dies at the end of the film. He sure which does. I, I feel like is is a departure from most other versions of Batman because mm-hmm. everybody wants to keep the Joker alive so they can make more money. Yep. Uh, fun fact, that shot of him as it slowly like circles from straight down onto his dead body as, yeah. as the laughing happens yep. is incredible. Great shot. It, there is some, there's some incredible shot, camera work in this movie for sure. Yeah. And to your point about like now they would keep the Joker alive for future movies. You know, it's funny because even at the time this movie was so uh, determined by 
corporate forces who wanted to cash in on so many things. And there were so many promotional tie ins, but they weren't thinking about keeping villains alive. It was just mm-hmm. like, hey, there's a million Batman villains. We'll just kill each one at the end of each movie and we'll still never run out of ideas. Yeah. So I, I think it's funny because it's like they've become even more soulless now. Where even though there are a million Batman villains, we can't kill them. You know what I mean? We have to preserve each and every one for some possible Avengers type mashup, you know, down the road. (laughs) Yeah, man. I should probably actually do Brad Explains now. I was going to say, I'm getting down off my soapbox. Brad, you have 60 seconds on the clock and go. Batman is a film that I am going to have a hard time explaining, Bob. (laughs) Did you know that? (laughs) I did, actually. Oh, man. This is a very convoluted plot, but I'll, I'll try to break it down. Michael Keaton is Batman because his parents died. Jack Nicholson is the Joker because he was like a crime lieutenant who falls into a vat of liquid when the, the crime boss tries to have him killed. And then he becomes the Joker and kills off the crime boss and takes over his operation. Uh, what's uh, what's her name? Vicky Valancourt. Who knows? Vale. There's Vale. Vale. There you go. Vicky Vale is this investigative reporter who uh, the Joker falls in love with and Batman falls in love with. And the Joker tries to kill everybody with a with like a, a, a chemical gas named Smilex and Batman stops him. Mm. The, the end. end. Yeah. All right. Is that is that good? I think like, it is good. And I, I want to push back on just one little thing you said, and it's not because I, I actually think you're wrong, but like you said that the plot of this movie is convoluted. And I don't know that that's really the word I would use. It's not as if there's like a million things happening in this movie. In fact, there's only like two things happening in this movie, but sure. it's it's just really unfocused. I think if I could give one overarching criticism of this movie, I thought that it was going to be like the the Burtoniness of it all and the sort of whimsy mm-hmm. that he brings to everything and and how that would or would not mash up with the sort of like gothic <laughs> German expressionist stuff. Yeah. I was like that, correction, dark whimsy, dark, dark whimsy <laughs> that actually works perfectly fine for me. And the the thing that is like the glaring flaw of this movie is that. The script was very obviously pieced together. They were writing it on the day and there were there were moments where Burton was filming the movie and Nicholson was asking him, like, why do I have to run up all these stairs in this tower? And Burton had to just be like, I don't know. They just told me that that's what they want you to do now. And so, like, (laughs) the, the production of this movie was a disaster. And I think that it shows so much in the way this movie is paced in the actual unfolding of the events. It seems like. This scene should go here, but we're actually going to put it four scenes later and we're going to insert three scenes that don't really help the flow of the movie. It's just it really is unfocused and it's all over the place, Brad. Yeah, if I had to re uh, restate what I said earlier, I don't like you said, I don't know if the plot is convoluted. What I should have said is this. A lot of stuff happens. (laughs) Like just because just because. And then the next scene happens just because it happens. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a chicken and the egg argument. Like, why does the Joker do something? Well, he does it because he did it. Like, Mm -hmm. like I can't fully explain why this movie moves from point A to point B to point C. But the overall plot is pretty simple. Yeah. Now, as we get into talking about the movie. I want to put a couple like uh, 
like uh what are they called like bumpers Ca- on the side caveats. of our bowling lane here like, ah, just, there you go just like you know some boundaries <laughs> for us I do not care about the lore of Batman as as developed over decades of comic books. And like, I don't, we I, just lost like at least 20 percent of our fan base. I just don't care. <laughs> like and I don't think that evaluating a movie based on like they were faithful to this, but not to this. Like it doesn't have any bearing on if the movie works or not. So I'm just thinking about this movie. Can I on the can other I side of thing, on that really please, quick? Please. I, I think that the key here. If you fall on the side of like, man, I really wanted them to be more faithful. I'll, I'll just say this. Comic books are endlessly reinventing themselves. Yes. And it's always a new artistic take on the character of Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, you know, whoever we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. And I think when you move into film, it's basically the same thing, just in a new medium. Yep. A hundred percent. On the other side of things, I think we need to acknowledge that we are influenced by three subsequent decades of Batman movies and all the iterations that we've seen. And so our idea of what makes a Batman movie is definitely influenced by that. And it needs to be acknowledged that for the most part, they all rip off this movie and how this movie chose to reveal the Bruce Wayne backstory. Mm-hmm. So like you you got to keep both of those things in tension. I'm not going to just disregard all the comic books, but then you know, judge this movie against Nolan's stuff. That's not fair to this movie either. But as we look at this movie as a whole, I think we need to move forward asking ourselves, okay, how did this movie portray the things we know about the Batman myth or whatever? And why did it choose to do that? And how successful was it with that? And I think that the the place to start is kind of at the beginning of the film where Batman is already Batman. You know, very mm-hmm. similar to this most recent The Batman with Robert Pattinson, it drops you in kind of in media rest, right? Like he is already taken on the mantle of being Batman. You don't really know anything about him. You don't know what's motivating him. He's just this guy who is already fighting crime. And I think that that is a really cool place for the first big Batman movie ever made to start. It's not like Nolan's where you get you know, 55 minutes of buildup to him putting on the cape. Like the guy is just already Batman and it's up to the audience to figure out what kind of Batman is this. I think the uh, technical term is in media knocks in the, in the middle of the night. <laughs> Cause I'm Batman. <laughs> Dude, I will say the, uh, I don't, I, I think it's in, um, I don't think it's in this one. In one of the Batman, I believe the Nolan version he he basically says, "I am the night," mm. and that's a kick-ass line, dude. It's a good it's a good line. It's but a good also line. also please respond to the whole thing about in media rest. Like, what? Yeah, I'm I'm sure you noticed it. What kind of significance does it have to you that like he's already Batman, and any origin story we get is told in flashback later on in the movie, not right up at the front. I think it sets up Nolan's Batman Begins. As like this really seminal work of like, let's dive deep into how Batman became the Batman. Mm-hmm. I think that for what Tim Burton is shooting for here, I think it actually works really well. Mm-hmm. Like we we know who he is and then let's show who he is through his actions in the present and flashbacks to the past. Like I, I feel like that's a pretty well established trope in films mm-hmm. That works really well here. 
I agree. And I think it also is this really clever kind of, you know, I hate to say the like subverting expectations, but this movie fades in on a Gotham City that looks like it's in the 1930s. Like it, Mm -hmm. it has the classic original Batman comics, you know, act not action comics, number one, but you know what I mean? Like from that era, the depression era Batman. And yet it's set in the 80s because you start looking at the cars and you're like, what's what's going on here? This is like this weird very fictional uncanny valley world and mm-hmm. you start to see this family a mom a dad and a son who get lost in the big city and they're walking down an alley and you're like oh this is where bruce wayne's parents are going to get killed guess what that's not bruce wayne's parents batman shows up and fights yep. some dudes like it's it's such a great little twist on what you're expecting to see at the beginning of the movie and it also like it's it's a great little stroke of establishing his character because then when you do get the flashback later on of what happened to his family in an alley, you understand why this guy dresses up like in a big rubber suit and hangs out in alleys. <laughs> a big rubber suit. It <laughs> is. A thing, it's man. a big rubber suit, man. He can't turn his neck at all. Please tell me that you've watched the Batman oh, spoofs yeah. of oh, Batman. All of them. <laughs> Just the line that will stick in my head forever from those. They're not hockey pads. (laughs) (laughs) Like it's the, the costuming set aside. I think one of the things that resonated with audiences in the eighties, the late eighties with this film is the fact that it took the source material seriously and it, it created costumes to the best of the ability that they had in the eighties that felt authentic to the comics without being ridiculous the way the Adam West Batman absolutely ridiculous. Right. And I I think that's something that advanced the genre of superhero movies in a way that no other film did. Yeah. I think the best analog to this movie in the superhero canon, it's not Superman, which came out in 78 and Batman started being developed a year after that. But it, it this movie doesn't flow like that. It doesn't have the same balance of goofiness and like high gothic architecture. I think it's <laughs> I think it's Raimi's first Spider-Man movie. I think Raimi is a much, much more similar director to Tim Burton mm-hmm. because he comes from that horror background, but it's all horror comedy. He loves visual gags. He has a very distinct visual style and there's a balance of the silliness with the seriousness. And I think that like. It's a it's a mistake to compare this movie to Nolan's Batman movies just as, oh, Tim Burton's are so much sillier because, A, you know, stick around for the Schumacher movies in a few years, <laughs> folks. Like, it's going to it's going to get a lot more silly. But also, I just I don't think that's what he's trying to do. And when you're when you're only real on screen depiction of Batman that had been super popular in the last few decades was Adam West. This is a much more serious, much darker take on that. And you've got even in the costuming, like, yes, it's a big rubber cowl and he can't turn his head, but like you've got the the bulletproof stuff. And mm-hmm. I just love that. I love that this movie knows it's based on a comic book like you yeah. don't get a five minute explanation of the tactical weaponry built into Batman's suit like you do yeah. with Nolan. Like, I think if there's one flaw of the, the Nolan era and post Nolan era superhero movies, it's like we have to convince the audience that all of this can happen in the real world. Yeah. I mean, look at the uh, the Avengers trying to explain time travel. Like, oh. like 
you have this like commitment to this is like almost reality. Right. And yet we're we're talking about time travel here, people. And, yeah, like and space raccoons. You're trying and, to be like gritty and realistic. And then you're talking about pim particles and like you're just doing yeah. magic. Like just be <laughs> sillier. I, I yes. wish these movies were sillier. Yeah. And, and I will say. The Nolan Batman. Yeah, let's let's leave the MCU out of this for now. The Nolan Batman films and this film are great for their own reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and we need to be okay with evaluating them completely on their own merit. And, and yep. it's okay to draw ties and say, hey, like, because the Burton Batman doesn't concern itself with a lot of the mechanics of Batman and how he how his gadgets work and all this, it kind of makes it cool when you get to see that in the Nolan Batman. Mm-hmm. And that's going to appeal to a different audience. Yep. I just think that as much as I love the Nolan Batman and think that they're better films, at least the first two, than this one, I love this movie, Bob. Yeah. I think it's one of the funniest films I've ever watched. <laughs> All right, before we get to the comedy, I want to comment on like one little thing you just said, because I think it's it's the biggest success of what this movie does well. By not focusing on all of the accoutrements, right? Like all of the mm-hmm. the tactical, you don't have Morgan Freeman explaining like this is a decommissioned military vehicle that we did this and this. I don't care. Although, right? if you're gonna have somebody explain it, it I might mean, as well be. Yeah, <laughs> granted, <laughs> sure. But because you're not wasting time on that, it frees up like a laser focused or or like a much more focused, I should say. Uh, character arc for Bruce Wayne. And I Ooh, don't think yeah. I don't think that like he changes from point A to point B throughout the movie. He's a very static character. <laughs> and you also don't get a lot of like what what are Batman's guiding principles? What are Batman's philosophies like you do with Nolan? He definitely doesn't have the no kill rule like Nolan's <laughs> Batman does. <laughs> he literally says to Nicholson up on top of the bell tower, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. And that's what I actually love about this Batman is he has the clearest, like most succinct driving force, which is just rage and revenge. He is yeah. pissed off. He's still mad about his parents 30 years later. Mm-hmm. You get this reveal that the Joker, Jack Napier, is the guy who killed his parents, which I think is like, you know, it's a bit much. But also it works for what Burton's trying to do. Like yeah. Batman's parents killer drove Bruce Wayne to become this figure and he is only this figure so that he can hunt down and find this guy. You don't really get the sense that he's like Gotham's big protector like he is in the Nolan films. He's protecting, but like once he figures out what's going on with Jack Nicholson, he's like, I'm going to murder that guy. And he does. Mm -hmm. And it's great. It's a great revenge story. And I love that at the end of the day, if you need a through line of this movie, it's just Batman's pissed off and he wants to kill a guy and then he kills the guy. The end. Yeah, that's it, man. Yeah. I mean, and I will say like the script is so messy, but it has a lot of great moments. Mm-hmm. And the the moment when he looks at Bruce, when I, I think they're in uh, Vicky's apartment, maybe. And he looks at him and go, you know, and he says the famous line, have you ever danced with a, a yeah. devil at midnight or something? In the something? pale moonlight, yeah. In the pale moonlight. And that look of realization on Keaton's face, like for how wooden of an actor Keaton is in this film, and it serves him well in the one moment where he shows emotion and then keeps it under wraps. 
Because it was that one of the few times in the film where I was like, oh, all right, Keaton, I see what you're doing here. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We can talk about the comedy in the movie. I didn't mean to make you hold off on that because it is a very funny movie. And I think you do have to distinguish the there's almost like three camps of funny in this movie. There's the silliness, which is inherent (laughs) to Tim Burton. Yeah, camps. <laughs> Get it? Because it's it's because it's, it's campy. campy. Ah. There's the silliness. There's the unintentional comedy, which is just a function of like a messy script and it being peak eighties. Mm-hmm. And then there's the actually really witty dialogue and moments that are you know positives of the script and of the direction. And I think you're right, man. Like it's a really funny movie, and it has incredible one-liners as well. Yes. So many incredible one-liners. Probably one of my favorites is when he is talking to Vicky at the museum after they've had their fun little prince sequence, and he's talking to her, and at some point he says something ridiculous, and she looks at him with horror and goes, you're insane. And he goes, oh, I thought I was a Pisces. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, there were so many moments like that throughout the film. Or when he, he punches uh, Bruce Wayne and he goes, never rub another man's rhubarb. <laughs> and I just, I literally like, if I had water in my mouth, would do a spit take mm-hmm. like eight or nine times throughout mm-hmm. this film because Nicholson nails, absolutely nails the comic delivery yep. and the the punchlines. I mean, even Keaton when they're sitting and having dinner at the table and it's like 80 feet long and he looks at her and goes, I don't think I've ever been in this room before. (laughs) All right, let's talk about Nicholson, because I don't know that we can talk any more about the comedy of the movie and just the overall impact of the film without talking Nicholson. He is the first build actor in this movie. I mean, for a reason, he's one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. He's a legend at this point. And he's the only choice for the Joker. I mean, I I just don't know anybody else who could have pulled this off because he has to have one foot in the I don't want to say the legacy, but like what people are used to, which is the Adam West, Cesar Romero Joker, mm-hmm. high camp, really goofy, super annoying. And one foot in The Shining like this is the, there are moments of this where it's like, oh, this is Jack Torrance by yes. way of Cesar Romero. And it's it's it works really brilliantly, man. I think that he's he's super menacing, but he's always menacing in a comic booky sort of way like it. It really does remind me of some of those Raimi Spider-Man things where it's like within the world you've constructed this super whimsical kind of silly world. This is an intimidating character. Now, if you took him and his dumb beret and his Prince music and put him in <laughs> Nolan's movie, it would stick out like a sore thumb. Because, again, yeah. you're right, Brad. They're just different worlds that have been built. But within what Burton's trying to do, it's pretty clear that Nicholson's on the same wavelength. So what you're saying is uh, Nicholson walked so that Willem Dafoe could run. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think it's more of like Willem Dafoe could glide around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that Nicholson's performance here is the thing where I- I've said this before. When you watch The Office and you've been watching it for seven, eight seasons and then Will Ferrell comes on the screen There is a level of like, yes, I don't love Will Ferrell's character for the episodes he's in, but Will Ferrell is a movie actor Mm -hmm. and there's a difference. Mm -hmm. And I think in this film, there's a little bit of the same thing where 
Michael Keaton and all of the other actors are good. They're fine. They're movie actors. Jack Nicholson is a Hall of Fame legend Mm -hmm. type of actor. Like maybe even a Mount Rushmore, like one of the best actors of all time. And you can tell. Like, (laughs) Like he has an ability to command the camera, which is what they asked him to do with this insane, wacky, campy performance. But he does it in such a compelling way that like you are like a little bit terrified by him, which makes all the comedy that much funnier. Mm-hmm. And I think the other aspect of his performance that was great is that I don't know if I've ever seen Nicholson. And I think part of this is because of the makeup that they did. I don't know if I've ever seen his eyes look more dead mm. than in this film. And it's, you know, they they arch his eyebrows and they give him this this, you know, chaotic permanent grin on his face that like basically is like Botox and he can't move his face. Mm -hmm. But that works so brilliantly that whether he is delivering a serious line or a comedic line, his eyes are unnerving and dead. Mm -hmm. And it's so, so good. Okay. Now you have gently crapped all over Michael Keaton like multiple times already on this podcast. So I'm just going to I'm going to ask you straight (laughs) out, like, what do you think of Michael Keaton here? Oh, man. I mean, Keaton at this point was known as a comedy actor, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I think he leaned into the stoicism of Batman a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. And and I'll I'll say what I said earlier. I think his performance is pretty wooden because of it. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that if I'm going to compare it to the Nolan films, because both films portray Batman as this stoic warrior, I think that Christian Bale is better able to give a emotionally attenuated performance where the things going on around him affect him emotionally, even if he doesn't show it in the moment. Mm -hmm. Whereas Keaton, I don't know if he's ever emotionally affected by anything other than being completely stoic or completely angry. Yeah, I think there's not much in between. I think that the big failure of this version of Bruce Wayne isn't on Keaton. I think it's on the script. And it's because the script gives him about 11 lines as Bruce Wayne. Like, (laughs) sure, he's he's Bruce Wayne for most of the movie. But I don't remember a thing he says. And his his primary trait as Bruce Wayne is being bored with being Bruce Wayne. Yeah, And you kind of get that with Christian Bale as well. But the thing that the Nolan films did so much better is they realized that Bruce Wayne has to dress up as Batman to be Batman. But he also has to dress up as the public persona of Bruce Wayne Mm -hmm. in order to throw people off the set. That he has to be a douchebag of a billionaire that no one would ever suspect would would defend someone else. And in this movie, you don't get that. He's he's just himself. And who he is is like, I hate these stupid parties. I wish you guys weren't in my house. I'm kind of lonely and I'm going to brood a little bit. But even the brooding is not like it doesn't seem connected to anything. It seems more <laughs> yeah. just like a deep, deep boredom. And because of that, the character is really boring. So, like, I, I think Keaton is a fantastic Batman because he's so pissed off. He's like the Hugh Jackman Wolverine of Batman. Yeah. But it's a really boring Bruce Wayne. Yeah, it really is. And and I've never thought about the Nolan Batman that way. That like specifically the role of Batman 
in the sense that there's actually three versions of him. Mm-hmm. There's the Batman version, the Playboy version, and the version that Michael Caine gets to see. Yep. And that like really does create a lot of depth and nuance to the character. For sure. Which you just don't get here. Yeah, you, you don't get it here. And I, and I think that's why it leads me to a point where I say Jack Nicholson is a Hall of Fame actor. <laughs> I, I don't know if Keaton is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, man. I've seen Birdman. It's an, that's an all-timer of a performance. Dude, uh, he's, he's he's so, so good. good. Which the, is why... The scene, go ahead, sorry. The scene where he and... Uh, Emma Stone is his daughter, right? Yep. Dude, the scene where Emma Stone and he are getting into it. Oh, what a scene, man. It's so good. I can't wait uh, to revisit that one someday with you. Yeah. All right, before we head to break, let's talk about Kim Basinger in this movie, uh, who is, I mean, you know, she was one of the bombshells of the late 80s and early 90s. She wins an Oscar in the late 1990s for L.A. Confidential. This is a nothing burger of a character. And honestly, Brad, like it is a completely forgettable performance character. Like, I know she put butts in seats, but like, what does she do? What is her function in this movie? Like, she's supposed to be the audience surrogate. She falls in love with Bruce Wayne immediately. Uh, she she's the one that gets to coax his backstory out of him a little bit, but like she's a terrible investigative reporter. She's not great as a girlfriend. She kind of gets in the way and then she gets dropped off a building at the end. And that's pretty much it, man. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there are moments where she kind of gets to channel, you know, if we reference the shining already, she kind of gets to channel an inner Shelly Duvall, you know, when she when she calls Nicholson insane and is like horrified mm-hmm. there. So there's a few moments where I think she just gives a good three seconds on camera. But, but a nothing burger of a character is a <laughs> that's a great I feel like that needs to be an award at the end of each season. The nothing <laughs> the nothing burger character. I nominate award. her. And I like again, I don't blame her. I think it's the script. This movie absolutely grinds to a halt whenever she is on screen. I mean, like to a halt. Yes. And even in that scene where Nicholson and his thugs come in and, and mess up the museum and then and corner her like that scene sucks, first of all. But the scene <laughs> where they're actually confronting her has some dramatic tension to it. But because it's her character, I'm like, I know you're not going to get killed. And also, like, you are not compelling enough to go toe to toe with Jack Nicholson in this scene. Nope. She does a good job being scared. But the reason that scene works is that he is so intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm with you, man. I was highly unimpressed with her. And to be frank, I don't know if I've ever seen Kim Basinger in a film before. Oh, so man. this is this is my lone experience with her. L.A. Confidential. We'll have to watch it someday. Ooh. And then we'll watch uh, Eminem 8 Mile, where, he, where she plays <laughs> Eminem's mom. Oh, wow. She's officially moved into mom status by the early 2000s. She sure had, man. (laughs) All right, dude, let's hit pause here. Let's drink some Canadian whiskey. What do you say? Let's get to it. All right. So today we are checking out Lot 40 Rye Canadian Whiskey. Uh, I guess it's, it's technically Lot 40 Canadian Rye Whiskey. That makes a lot more sense. This is a rye from Canada. Brad, we have not had a Canadian whiskey in a long, long time on the podcast. What is unique about Canadian whiskey is that almost everything is aged exclusively in used barrels. So even if the rye is distilled in Canada, 
they're aging it in either used rye barrels or used bourbon barrels. And so it it's a much how do we say this delicately, Brad? It's a much gentler spirit. Yeah. There's just not as much flavor imparted. Um, Canadian whiskey is te- is typically much cheaper than American whiskey mm-hmm. or Scotch or Japanese. Again, because there is uh, just very you know not a lot of margin there. Like they're just yeah. using used stuff to make their whiskey. Whiskey snobs typically don't like Canadian whiskey, and I've had some Canadian whiskeys that I really love. You know, Brad, we we've had this Found North multiple oh. batches of that that was Canadian whiskey. <laughs> Again, that's that's barrel proof and it's been aged for like 18 years. But 18 years in a used barrel is very different than 18 years in a new barrel. So, yeah. We're diving in well, with some some Canadian whiskey. What are your impressions of Canadian whiskey, Brad? I think in general, Canadian whiskey is sullied by the Crown Royals of the world mm-hmm. where there are cheap Canadian whiskeys out there. There's the Canadian mists of the world. Mm. I, uh, I know your absolute favorite of all time. Yeah, that was Here, probably my low point on this podcast was giving that a high score. Yeah, I try. I tried to pull you back from the edge, Bob. <laughs> once once we resampled it, I was like, what have I done? Well, <laughs> the, the depths to which I have descended. Yep. Oh, man. I, I think my issue with Canadian whiskey is what I just said. The most famous versions of it, uh, I won't be delicate, Bob, because I'm not like you. They suck. Mm. They suck real bad. The good versions of it that I've had are incredible. And mm-hmm. granted, some of the good versions of it I've had are imported Canadian whiskeys that are then blended and finished or just aged longer. So who knows? Maybe they are adding something that Canadian distillers can't. But I will try my best to defend Canadian whiskeys and say, I have had many whiskeys sourced out of Canada that I think are like immaculately good, like Mm -hmm. really, really great products. Found North does that. Barrel does that. I'm very impressed. I'll also say this. Like Scotland, when they make scotch, they use used barrels. That's all they use. So, you know, I, I don't think that Canada is in a uh, in a terrible group of people using used barrels. All right. So Lot 40 is considered not like a super premium whiskey, but definitely a cut above what you would typically get in your Canadian whiskeys like a Crown Royal It clocks in at 86 proof. It is made of 100% rye, but we don't really have any other details aside from that. There's no age statement. There's no, you know, what barrels was this finished in? So that's all we have to go on. Brad, I think we've both tried this already, so we'll just go right into our notes. What did you pick up on the nose of this? Yeah, I mean, this is a 100% rye whiskey, and you can tell. I think it has some, when you get into really high rye whiskeys, I think that it leans into a black licorice anise nose Mm. that doesn't always translate on the palate, which is a good thing because black licorice is absolutely disgusting. So for me on the nose, I'm getting some of that anise. I am getting a strong bit of rye. I think where it starts to shine is that it does have some really nice vanilla notes the the spiciness leans into like a really nice Christmassy cinnamon and nutmeg. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that there's some really pleasant things going on here. Overall, I think it's decent. I'll give it a seven out of ten. I don't know how to explain my notes, man. So I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna give that disclaimer. <laughs> and I, I say that because 
the entire tasting experience and nosing experience, there's just something a little bit off about this, and I cannot put my finger on it. It doesn't smell chemically. It doesn't smell like really young grain. It doesn't smell too faint. And yet I think the thing that I would like most respond to is to say, I think the fact they used used barrels in this probably takes away from something here. Didn't help. I get a lot of lemon. I get a lot of lime. It doesn't smell like lemon pledge, which is something we've gotten on really astringent whiskeys before. I just feel like that citrusy note is is almost masking something. But, you know, we've had craft ryes before, Brad, that have that like way too young rye grain. This is not mm-hmm. that. It, it's like no. a matured grain that just didn't extract enough flavor from the wood. And so yeah. it it almost does just smell like cheap, cheap whiskey. I think that's the best thing I can say about it. It's not unpleasant. But even nosing it, I'm like, okay, like I know I know what I'm getting into now. So I'm going to give it a six and a half on the nose, but that's kind of setting the stage for the rest of my notes here. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about your palate then. Where where did you go from the nose? I think the taste is actually quite nice. Uh, Again, I think it's really, really bright. I still got a lot of citrus on this. It's like sugar sweet on the front of the palate and, and almost like sugar water. Like there's not a lot of complexity here. Just a hint of rye, but throughout the whole thing, I'm like, I don't think this is an expensive whiskey. And this is before I even looked up the price because, spoiler alert, they don't sell it in the state of Ohio. So I had to really dig for the price. Mm-hmm. I just could tell, like, this tastes like Canadian whiskey. It's not bad tasting, but it's a process that I would call, like, a not ideal process for making whiskey. Yeah. So it's like the best example of a not great process. Uh, I gave it a seven out of 10. Yeah, I'm, dude, I'm sitting right a half point above you for both so far. I'm at a seven and a half. Do you know, like, when you go to like a farmer's market and they have the honey stand and they have like honey sticks that you mm-hmm. can like cut open and drop in your tea and it, you know, just melts into it? Yeah, yeah. I remember getting a mint honey stick where they had, you know, infused like some peppermint into it. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what this tastes like. Like the kind of the sweetness of honey with a little bit of like an artificial mint Mm. infused into it. And I say artificial specifically that it's not like a fresh, uh, you know, herbal, minty honey taste. It it tastes a little bit artificial. Mm -hmm. And I I think that kind of keeps me from really giving it a high score. But overall, I think this has a nice pleasant, sweet, floral palette, it, it just doesn't quite deliver on what it's promising you. Mm-hmm. You keep drinking it, searching for a little more, and you're like, uh, it's it's almost there. It's not quite there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. That's a like super specific example, but that's kind of what I have on the finish for this, too. You know, like, I think you see it more in white chocolate than you do with, with uh, milk or dark chocolate, but they make these, like, chocolate wafers that are like highly waxed, like high, like there's like a yeah. high shine on them. Yes, yes, yes. And it leaves a very particular like waxy feel in your mouth when you eat something like that. That's what that's the sensation I had on the finish here. It it almost it didn't coat my tongue in like an oily way. It was almost like a layer of artificial wax on top of a piece of candy that that built like a barrier to, to tasting more things. And it left a waxy <laughs> consistency in my mouth and 
man, uh, not the greatest experience. I, I'm just going to give it a six out of 10. It wasn't an unpleasant flavor, but there's something about the mouthfeel here, especially towards the finish that really took this down a peg for me. Yeah, I, I got some dark chocolate. I got the rye. Um, it didn't really get super oaky on the end. So obviously another sign of the used barrels. I actually really didn't care for the finish. It, it dropped off pretty harshly from the the palate and the nose. I give it a five and a half here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to give it a six on balance. And this was hard for me to do because I think it's good and I think it's consistent throughout. But there's just something a bit off about it the whole way through. And I think it, it almost seems unfair because I think I'm judging it by the process that everyone else in the world makes rye, which is like we're going to put it in a new barrel and it's going to taste better. So it's like, am I just judging the process that I don't like here? Maybe. I think this is a pretty good example of a Canadian whiskey, but like the best Canadian whiskeys we've had, you know, that aren't like barrel proof found north are just mediocre whiskeys. And I think that's kind of what this is. So it's a six for me here. Yeah, I'm at the same place as you. Six out of 10 on balance. There's not enough complexity to bump the score up anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll give it a six. Um, I I think when we move into value, Bob, the the general price that I found was like $35 to $40. Mm -hmm. Is that what you were seeing? Yeah, I I wrote down 35. That seemed to be about like the average of what I was seeing. So are you cool with 35 as our price point? Yeah, I think at $35, I would probably give it like a five and a half. Like it's not it's not the worst value that I've ever seen. It's not like a two or three out of 10. I just think that there are better whiskeys out there to drink in that upper $30 range. You know, the only thing that I I should have done more research on, I'm not familiar uh, as to whether or not there are like tariffs on Canadian imports. Like I imagine there's some sort of markup just because it's crossing the border. But like we work so closely with Canada, it might not be very much. So I'm going to assume that it's a minimal tariff on this. At 35, I really don't think this is that bad, man. Like Crown Royal is, I think, 25. I think this is $10 better than Crown Royal. I'll give it a seven out of 10. But again, it's not the same as I would give like a a really good bourbon that happens to be $35. Like, I think spend your $35 elsewhere. (laughs) But like within the category of Canadian whiskey, this doesn't seem exorbitantly expensive to me. Yeah, no, it, it really isn't that bad. If you want to get into Canadian whiskey, I think this is a decent offering. Um, doing a quick Google search, it seems like there is a tariff on Canadian whiskey, but that it is less than most other countries who ship whiskey to us. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that this, this is probably a pretty decent deal in the realm of Canadian whiskey. I I just don't think it's, I don't know, Bob, I'm coming to like a 31 and a half out of 50. I'm at a 32 and a half out of 50. Yeah. So yeah, like we're, like we're pretty much in the fine. same spot. Yeah, it's a 64 yep. out of 100. It's, you know, it's a 32 out of 50. Um, I don't recommend like it's fine. It, I wasn't I wasn't offended by this. It was perfectly fine to watch Batman while drinking. Yeah. And then I forgot that I drank it, you know. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. Well, it is the Kim you, Basinger of whiskeys. Brad. <laughs> it sure is, man. <laughs> How about we get back to talking about Batman? Because we have not mentioned 
the Danny Elfman soundtrack mm. for this, and I am excited to talk about that. Let's get to it, man. All right, everybody, that was Lot 40 Rye. Now, here's the deal. If you want to hear us review better whiskey than Lot 40 Rye, <laughs> which is all I'm going to say about that, you should think about joining our Patreon. Patreon is an incredible way to support us as we continue to try and give you the highest quality audio, more content, more episodes. If you're able to join our Patreon at any of the three different uh, monthly pay levels, three, five, or seven dollars a month, it enables us to create more content. And we just want to say thank you to the people who already subscribe on Patreon. And if you are thinking about doing it, you can head on over to patreon.com slash film whiskey. Brad, you know, a quick plug for the Patreon. It's not simply a donation mechanism. You do get really cool stuff with your subscription as well. Like uh, you sure do get access to our discord server. You get bonus episodes that are only meant for Patreon subscribers. Uh, it is a truly a wealth of information when you join us at patreon.com slash film whiskey. I am going to gloat for a minute here, Brad. Yeah. Yes. I am unde- your... undefeated on the season so far at our next segment, which we call two facts and a falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you ball to our right. And what is wrong? Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood is the part of the podcast where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a complete lie, and it's up to me to figure out which one that is. I'm 1-0 on the season, man. Yeah, you are. I got you. with. I, I used my Rain Man powers to figure out exactly <laughs> what the, the falsehood was last week. I don't, I don't know if you want to claim that. That uh, might get you into some trouble on the internet. Nah, you know, I've already said it. It's out there now. <laughs> All right, man. Are you ready for the three facts about Batman? Let's do it. Fact number one, upon seeing the initial life-side polys... Bleh, I should have said this out loud before I read it. Polystyrene... Does that that sound good? Mm Mm-hmm. Upon seeing the initial life-size polystyrene model of the Batmobile, Tim Burton turned to art director Terry Ackland Snow and said, Great! Where's the door? The design team suddenly realized that the design lacked any doors, and inspired by the cockpit of a Harrier jump jet, Terry came up with the idea of a sliding cockpit. Huh. Fact number two, in the scene when Michael Keaton announces his presence to Gotham's underworld, Keaton utters the famous words, I'm Batman. This scene was shot over 40 times as Burton could not decide if he wanted the line to be, I'm Batman or I'm the Batman. He finally settled on I'm Batman after Keaton just told him to flip a coin to the side. Fact number three, the the role of the Joker was offered to Robin Williams when Jack Nicholson hesitated. He had even accepted the role, and when producers approached Nicholson and told him that Williams would take the role if he did not, Nicholson decided to take the role, and Williams was released from the project. Williams resented being used as bait, and not only refused to play Riddler in Batman Forever in 1995, but also refused to be a part of any Warner Bros. productions until the studio apologized. Hmm. Wow, I didn't know that story. Maybe there's a a reason. Yeah, I was going to say that. That does stick out to me as the falsehood a little bit. (laughs) I really want number one to be true. Mm -hmm. Because that was was a cool fact. 
Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, if you if you wrote that one, I, I you did a good job. Huh. I'm gonna say number two is the falsehood, just because it was my least favorite of the three facts, and I have no <laughs> no idea which one the actual <laughs> falsehood is. So, um, yeah, I'll go with number two, Brad. Bob, you are at a place in your life where you might just might be deserving to gloat a little bit as you move to two and zero. Hey, all right. Yeah, good job, man. I'm two full games over 500 right now. <laughs> you I can sure take are. two weeks off, put in the backups, and not even care about it. Still yeah, make the playoffs. That's basically what the Browns do every year. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, man. Th- the fact that they offered the role to Williams, had it accepted by him, and then they were like, nah, we actually want to jack the whole time. <laughs> that's crazy. That's I mean, so shady, bro. I mean, listen, I did say. I think Nicholson is the only person that could have played this role. And then when you yeah. said the thing about Robin Williams, I was like, oh, man, like I've never even thought about Robin Williams. And it's just a very different energy. Yes. Um. Yeah. I'm, I'm just shocked that they even like considered somebody else. But it makes a lot of sense that they just used him as a pawn. Can you imagine how much cocaine Williams would have had to done to like be the Joker? <laughs> it It would have been. Just like Scarface levels, mountains of cocaine. I wonder if, I don't even know if he was sober at this point, but like, right, man, just the sheer amount of cocaine floating around back then couldn't have been helpful. Yeah. We should do like an investigative deep dive, completely change the podcast and just talk about cocaine in in like Hollywood 80s. Oh yeah. Perfect. (laughs) It'll be a lot of fun. All right, well, uh, let's segue away from this because I hear the listeners <laughs> dropping like flies. But let's talk a little bit about the design of this movie, the the Tim Burton of it all, the production design, the score of the film. I think there's a lot more that I really want to talk about on that end than there was with the acting or the plot of the movie itself. And I guess I'll just start kind of on a broad level with Gotham City, period. I think the design of Gotham is my favorite of any Batman movie. I One thing that I kind of hate about the Nolan films is like, it's just Pittsburgh. And I like Pittsburgh, but like, you yeah. know, it's just yeah. Pittsburgh. Like, yeah. there has to be some element of this city has a unique identity that is separate from what we see in the real world. And this movie does it better than any. It, it's clearly inspired by German expressionism. There's a ton of the movie Metropolis here, but it also has these weird, grimy you know, late 1970s taxi driver streets. And I think it's a really cool mashup that that Burton's working with here. And the obviously the production design team, too. Yeah, the he definitely is incredible at building out this specific world of Batman to have its own geography and architecture and persona of like how people in this world act and 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 respond to one another i think that the tim burton of it all actually really adds to this film and it's hard to separate any one tim burton film from the rest of them but i will have to give him credit here this stands out for the fact that it is a tim burton film with no johnny depp and no <laughs> helena bonham carter that it, like it was that just alone, too soon, you know. Yeah, yeah, that makes it a very unique Tim Burton film. That's funny, man. 
No, I, I completely agree, though. And I think like as I was watching the movie, a few things really stuck out to me. And, and one of them sounds stupid to say, but like, remember how they used to light movies? Remember how movies used yeah. to look like movies? This looks like a movie. It doesn't look yeah. like a crappy TV show. It doesn't look gray and washed out. You know, people were really praising the Batman last year or I guess in 2022 uh, for its cinematography. And I, I didn't. It's so murky and muddy. And this movie uses shadow in such a stark way. I absolutely love it. And the set design to go around the lighting. There's a scene early in the movie, Brad, where uh, Nicholson's character before he's the Joker, Jack Napier, is mm -hmm. kind of meeting in a back alley with a corrupt cop, like the big fat guy with the cigar. And yeah. and right behind both of them, the set is completely monochrome. It's like a grayed out background. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't look like a set that's been painted gray. It's lit so well that it literally looks like they shot the backgrounds on black and white and then just like did rear projection and put color people in front of it. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah, it's yep. so well lit and it's so well designed and it holds up amazingly, you know, 35 years later. Yeah. And I think it's stuff like that which makes this movie still worth watching. Mm. Like coming like coming into watching it the first time and even having watched it once, I think that this movie just feels like a meme. Like th between the the costuming for Jack Nicholson and how how Keaton isn't able to move his head at all because of the the Batman costume, there's so much of this film that's ridiculous that when you actually return to it, and watch it with a critical eye, there is so much to like about this movie. And you're right. The the lighting in this movie is spectacular. I think that the sets are built beautifully and compellingly. And I think on top of all that, or I probably should say underlying all that as this beautiful foundation, is one of the best superhero themes we have ever gotten. Mm. You know what's really great about it too, Brad, is the the very end of the movie, the score changes to a more triumphant kind of uh, key. Like it's yeah. not it's not in the key that it's originally in, and it kind of morphs into this like fanfare at the end. And it is very obviously Elfman doing John Williams. Yeah. Yep. But it's so freaking good. And uh, yeah. once again, it's like remember when they used to write themes for for yeah. movies remember yes. like even you know what 12 14 however many years ago when the first avengers came out you got that great alan silvestri dun 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 we don't get that anymore they just don't write themes for superheroes anymore or heroes in general and it's so freaking refreshing to hear a recognizable earworm of a musical theme that's done this well yes and like I, I finished playing the 2017's uh, Insomniac Spider-Man video game, and I, you know you're in the final fight and and you're fighting Doc Ock, and it's this incredible, beautiful cinematic experience on a video game. And I literally paused it and was like, "Why is the music so like boring and feel like it's just retread Avengers music?" Mm. And I like I can't get over how the Avengers theme just was great for what it was made for in that one movie. And then they decided, let's make every single movie, video game, anything 
relating to superheroes sound exactly like that. Mm-hmm. And you're right, man. This song is a freaking banger, and it and it sticks <laughs> in your head, and and it's also so recognizable. Like, I feel like anybody who grew up in the '90s, at the very least, you know, maybe not 2000s, you could just give them the da 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 dun. And like, it, boom, transported. I'm I'm in the mind of Batman. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the music, though, Brad, because this this kind of gets back to my problems with the movie. And I've really been praising this movie on a technical level, on a directorial level, on an acting level. It is a severely flawed movie on the script yeah. level. <laughs> it's also a severely flawed movie in that there was so much studio interference like Burton nearly lost his mind making this movie. He he didn't love the final product. He thought that it was so messed with and so, so thrown together script wise that it was a boring movie. I kind of agree with him. Yep. And one of the areas where you really see that overreach is the insertion of all of these songs by Prince into the movie. <laughs> Burton was yeah, against indeed. it from the start. He had nothing against Prince, but he he'd already, you know, contracted Danny Elfman to do the score for this movie. And didn't know how they were going to work these songs in. And initially, I think it was only going to be like one or two songs. So you could probably slap one on the end credits and only have to work one song into the movie. Prince saw an early cut of the movie and was like, I want to make a whole album. Like, I'll, I'll make a whole album for you guys. And of course, you're not going to say no to Prince. Yeah. And I was reading an interview that Prince gave later on. And he basically said, like, I felt sympathy for Tim Burton and basically just told him, like, look, man. I'll I'll redo my songs if you want me to, like whatever you need for this movie. But even with that, you know, gesture of goodwill, they just don't fit, man. Like it's it's really bad. And especially yeah. the scene where Nicholson and his goons are destroying the museum and Nicholson like walks in and is marching like he's he's leading a marching band. But the mm -hmm. beat of the song doesn't line up and it's just like the action on screen doesn't match up with the structure and like. Uh, dynamics of these songs at all. And they're just not like even among Prince songs, they're not really that good. <laughs> like it, yeah, it took me out of the movie so much. And it was so clearly just another way for Warner brothers to sell stuff, to promote this movie that they, they kind of ruined parts of the movie to do it. Question, Bob, are any Prince songs really that good? I like Prince. I know that like, you're not a huge Prince <laughs> fan, but you know, I've never I remember you hear about a song like Purple Rain and I don't think I ever heard that song until I was like 20. Yeah. And I remember hearing it and being like this. This is what everybody's been talking about. I I, I don't get it, man. I I don't understand the 80s. I, I think we've <laughs> well established that fact <laughs> by now. Specifically, though, 1989's Batman does not need any prince in the film. Danny Elfman is doing a killer job at establishing the themes and has, you know, a few pretty good light motifs. And then you have Prince and it just doesn't vibe. And, you know, maybe, maybe that's like, I don't know. It's not something Burton was going for as you've already established. So I don't know. You could maybe argue that like it fits in the sense that the Joker completely i don't know doesn't jive with the city of gotham that's why they want to kill him i i don't know that's dumb get mm. rid of prince uh the album was a i'm reading directly from a website right now the album was a staggering success 
The Batman soundtrack <laughs> would stay number one on the Billboard 200 for six weeks during the summer of 1989. Man. Its lead single, Bat Dance, would also peak at number one on the Hot 100, the first wow. single of Prince's to top the chart since Kiss three years earlier. Another song from the album, Party Man, which I think is that museum song, peaked at number 18, while other entries made the R&B charts. Like, a very Dude. successful album that not one person I know has ever recommended to me. Like, even yeah. my Prince fan friends, no one remembers this album. Yeah, but man, people in 1989 really loved it. Mm. Another reason why we should stop doing cocaine. <laughs> All right, man, I think it's time for us to get into our final segment of the day, which we call Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's a struggle. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. Let's Make It a Double is the part of the show where we pick a movie to pair up with this one to make the perfect double feature. Brad, I've already given mine, like, way earlier. I think it's the second week in a row that I have stepped all over this segment by introducing my Let's Make It a Double too early. It's 2002's Spider-Man. Yeah. And I don't really know... That there's another movie out there that I that I would want to match up with this one. They just kind of go perfectly together. Although I will say, I think Spider-Man's the better movie. Yeah, I, I think Spider-Man is the better movie. I think that that Spider-Man bridges the gap between like comic book campy and this could happen in real life. The most beautifully of almost any superhero movie out there. Mm. It is ridiculous, it is funny, it's sad and serious, and whoever plays Ben Parker in that film should have been nominated for an Oscar, because I don't think you can think of Ben Parker as played by anyone else. Mm. Like, he is spot-on perfect. So, I, I think that's a spectacular pick, Bob. I think I'm going to go a little bit older for my pick, and I'm doing this for two reasons. One, I think that it would be fun to compare the two films. And two, it's a childhood favorite of mine. I'm going to recommend the 1966 film, Batman. Mm, a movie I have not seen. You've never seen Whack, Pow, Bam. I mean, I've seen episodes of the TV show. So I was like, I don't need to watch this movie. Like, I, I get uh, it. I know what I'm doing. You, you need to watch it. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous, man. And I think if you are looking to like, round out your comic book movie history i think that it's a really good thing in one night to sit down and watch adam west and then watch you know michael keaton and then compare that to what you see in the later films and just have a, have an interesting superhero history movie night uh fun fact the actor from spider-man that played uncle ben is uh cliff robertson who okay. is an oscar winner like he won best Ooh. actor in the 1960s. So he he Let's got go. it. He got his Oscar. He didn't get it for Spider-Man, but yeah. There you he, go. I mean, he still had it in 2002, man. He sure did, man. All right, Brad, I think I am ready to give my final score on this movie. Are you? I uh, dude, I am I was born ready. This is this is what my entire life has been leading to, Bob. Once again, I think I'm going to give it a lower score than it might deserve and I think you're going to give it a score that will bump us up to a, a more pleasant average here. I enjoyed this movie a lot, and it's like, it's going to be one of the strongest recommended seven out of tens I ever give a movie, but like, despite how well done 
the cinematography, the lighting, the set design, the acting, the direction is, it cannot overcome how severely flawed <laughs> the pacing and the scripting is. Like, there were long stretches of this movie that were very boring. I'm not going to lie, dude. Like, you could skip whole scenes yes. of this movie and it would still, yep. it would probably work better. So I, I think it's a seven out of 10 and it's a testament to how good everything else is that it could manage to scrape itself up to a seven. Yeah. I genuinely, you could just copy and paste everything you just said and insert it in my <laughs> mouth. Like I am at a seven out of 10. It is one of the most wildly enjoyable and boring seven out of tens you'll ever watch. <laughs> Do you recommend it? I do. I do too. Yeah. I, I think it's a fun film. I think that if you watch it with a bunch of friends and have a few drinks, it's going to be a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right, man. Well, that closes the book on the 1980s. We're going to open the book on the 1990s next week. And the timing is just awful on this, Brad, because we've just wrapped up Christmas a few weeks ago. But we're looking at the John Hughes, Chris Columbus classic, Home Alone. Oh, dude. A film I have not revisited in quite some time. Yeah. Honestly, it's probably been seven or eight years for me. Yeah. So it's it's been a long time. Nothing screams Christmas like a child enacting lethal violence on others. Yeah. And yet somehow they don't die. <laughs> All right. We'll be back next week with Home Alone. Until then, you can find us on our social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, at Film Whiskey. Or you can join our Discord. We are on Discord every single day talking to you guys, fans of the Film and Whiskey podcast. So if you like to talk about movies and whiskey, then you can find a link to our Discord at the end of every single one of our show notes. Folks, we are having an absolute blast so far with this series. I would love to hear what you're thinking of the first two episodes of Season 8. We will see you next week for Episode 3 of Season 8. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time.